Hi everybody, it's Derek, and this is Foreign Exchanges for March 30th, 2020. Got another, uh, hopefully, uh, informative and uh, enjoyable bit of quarantine content for you guys today. I'm going to be joined here in a few moments by Kelsey Atherton, a three-time returning champion at this point, Kelsey Atherton. Uh, Kelsey is a defense technology journalist based in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Uh, he has been on the show in the past to talk about issues around drones and uh, you know, sort of autonomous weapons of war, uh, as well as uh, issues around what a left, leftist foreign policy or a left-wing uh, reorientation of U.S. foreign policy might look like. Uh, I would urge you to go back and, and check those interviews out. They're in the archives. Um, he runs the Tomorrow Wars newsletter at C4ISRnet. Uh, I'll let him talk about that at the end of the interview, but you should check that out as well if you're interested in uh, these sorts of big questions about where our warfighting capabilities are heading in terms of autonomous vehicles uh, and other sorts of technological issues. Uh, and he... Uh, is involved with the Fellow Travelers blog, which uh, is something I don't plug enough, uh, but is uh, a site you guys should check out, Fellow Travelers blog. Uh, you can Google that and find them, uh, or you could just go to fellowtravelersblog.com, I guess. Uh, I don't know why I said you should Google it, but you could just go to the, the actual URL. Um, you know, They do a lot of sort of interesting writing about... Uh, rethinking U.S. foreign policy from a left-wing perspective. So all of those things are, are good to check out. Uh, he's also just written a piece uh, for Inkstick Media uh, called The Plague and the Long War, Humanity's Long History of Fighting in the Plague Room uh, that takes, I think, an interesting historical view of uh, the situation in which we find ourselves right now. Uh, I know people have asked if uh, we could have some some content on past kind of uh, plagues, epidemics. Uh, so I saw, you know, Kelsey had written this piece and I thought I'd have him on to, uh, to sort of talk about that uh, a bit. And also, but also I think he, he does a good job of connecting uh, the historical examples to the present day case, uh, specifically in the, the sense of the way that the United States is uh, punishing our supposed geopolitical foes, and uh, I'm thinking primarily of Iran, but it applies to a couple of other places as well, uh, by not just refusing to ease sanctions at this a very critical time when uh, it would do a lot of good to maybe help contain the pandemic, uh, but is actually ratcheting up sanctions, going in the opposite direction and trying to turn the screws even further uh, on the Iranian uh, government and the, the Iranian people. Uh, so we're going to go, we're going to talk about that kind of sweep. Uh, we'll start with the historical stuff and, and give you a little bit of that content, and then we're going to uh, talk about what's going on here in the sanction space and uh, uh, sort of, uh, in general, you know, moving even past 
the pandemic and what the United States is doing uh, to sort of use the pandemic to help enhance its uh, the power and the punishment that its sanctions deliver. Uh, we're going to you know talk a little bit about sanctions policy in general, I think, and, and how you can uh, view sanctions through a, a, a more progressive lens and uh, the problems that they, the problems that arise when you, you start, uh, you know, really digging into to sanctions policy and using sanctions as almost a, 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 an alternative to military force, but in some senses, you know, just as devastating. Uh, so I'm going to have uh, Kelsey on the line here in a moment. I want to preface this by saying uh, uh, my plan is not to release this podcast until Monday, um, March 30th. Uh, because I just released a podcast yesterday with John Pfeffer. I hope you guys check that out. Um, I kind of want to space these things out a little bit so you're not inundated. Uh, I don't think we're going to talk about anything here that is uh, is going to change very drastically over the next few days. Uh, but if we do, uh, understand that we are recording this uh, on March 26th. So if anything, if we say anything that does wind up being kind of uh, overwhelmed or overtaken by events, uh, please be merciful on us. Uh, hopefully that's not going to happen. Uh, so with that, with that caveat in mind, <laughs> let me get Kelsey on here and we can start uh, the interview. All right, I am joined uh, via Skype here by Kelsey Atherton. Uh, as I noted in the introduction, Kelsey is a defense technology journalist based in Albuquerque, New Mexico. He has uh, he has a newsletter called Tomorrow Wars at C4ISRnet, uh, and he has written a new piece for Inkstick Media uh, called The Plague and the Long War, Humanity's Long History of Fighting in the Plague Room. We will, uh, I'll be linking to that in the show description. Uh, but I think it's it gives us a chance to do a little uh, historical discussion, which I think people have been asking for, but also uh, to tie things into the current COVID-19 situation. Kelsey, thank you for being on the show. Oh, my pleasure. Three-time three -time returning champion, actually, I should say. Uh, so welcome back. Uh, so, all right. Let's start with uh, the reason I, I like this piece because people have asked, you know, if the, we could, if you know, on the newsletter or, you know, in the podcast, uh, I could do a little kind of talking about past uh, pandemics, I guess. I mean, that's sort of, you know, your mind wanders to these things, I guess, at a time like this. Uh, and uh, so your piece starts off with. Uh, as it sort of talks about the nexus between war and disease. Uh, and you start off with the plague of Athens during the Peloponnesian War. Talk about what happened here. And we're, I mean, we're going way back, but uh, uh, I think it's a, a, a relevant case. So tell, give people a little background into the, uh, what happened in Athens during the Peloponnesian War. Sure. So um, the Peloponnesian War, as um, your most obnoxious classics major friends or uh, the uh, garbled manglings of the History Channel may have told you, right? It's our classic, the Western canon's classic example 
of a tr deeply tragic war. You have the rising democracy Athens. You have the uh, autocratic Sparta. They're both there's whole messes in all of their societies. They're both colonial empires. They're shitty places for most people in most ways all of the time. The war happens because Athens, um, I mean, the Athens sort of provokes the war. And then what immediately happens, because Athens and Sparta are uh, not super far apart, is that Sparta marches its really good army and camps outside the wall of Athens. Um, and in response, Athens pulls in people behind the city wall. The city wall is strong enough. The siege weapons aren't quite there yet. Um, and so a ton of people gather in and then Athens has its navy and surely that will be enough. Um, and the war mostly takes place with two things happening, which is like the Athenian navy goes around and fucks shit up. The Spartan army just basically keeps Athens pinned in. And inside Athens, um, basically as soon as the Spartans park outside, um, the Spartans bring with them a disease that uh, historians have later traced. Um, and even like, I think to these notes, it came with mercenaries fighting alongside the Spartans from Africa through Sparta to Athens. And then it ends up just being this awful disease that is exacerbated um, in Athens itself. And so the entire time that uh, this, this proto-democracy city-state is fighting this huge war against its like immediate rival, um, citizens are just dying horribly inside, um, inside the city walls. The army can't really touch them, but it sort of doesn't matter. The estimates, and these are modern estimates, but they put the death um, over the five years that the disease hit Athens from between 75,000 to 100,000 people. Um, and this is like, that's horrific modern times. That is uh, apocalyptic um, if we're talking about population levels in the ancient world. Um, that's about a quarter of the population of Athens at the time. It's it's interesting. It's one of those things that... that um... People still don't know. I mean, there's some plagues, obviously, like the Black Death, for example. We know now, you know, what caused them. The Plague of Athens, we don't know still. Uh, there are theories. I've seen uh, typhus as one theory. Uh, uh, you know, this smallpox, maybe, uh, you know, is another theory. Uh, one of the most interesting and I think most recent theories is that it was some kind of a hemorrhagic fever, similar to Ebola or the Marburg virus. Uh, it's, it's an interesting, like, I, I know it doesn't really matter, right? I mean, it's like uh, kind of irrelevant, but you sort of, uh, I find it fascinating to kind of piece through, you know, historians kind of piece through the sources and try to uh, figure out from these very often kind of vague uh, literary almost descriptions of symptoms they try to come up with a uh, a, a diagnosis but yeah you're you're uh, do you have a theory do you have a favorite theory on the i this? don't particularly um there's uh if you look it up there's really interesting medical debate um one of the things um and it's sort of um to some extent um it kind of it's interesting to find out and it would be interesting to know conclusively but what really um, kind of matters more is that um, they had no, obviously no modern theory of disease, but like we get uh, Hippocrates from this era. Um, we get, or a little later, we get the, the whole Greek concept of medicine that like went on to influence like how you care and treatment. And like they got a ton wrong, but the idea of dedicated physicians and care 
is something they knew in that world. And what happened is you not only have a novel disease introduced from afar, but you have it with a complete collapse of all the basic norms and not even just norms. So Thucydides spends a lot on norms um, as, as he would, but also just like society kind of collapses. And when you have so many people dying, it kind of doesn't matter the cause. You just don't have a society anymore. That's uh, that's uh, certainly true. And the, I mean, in the case of Athens, it was, um, you know, I think to contrast with what we're seeing, let's say, in the United States uh, in the wake of, you know, the, the, the Senate bailout bill and, uh, you know, I, well, I don't want to make put too fine a point on it. But I mean, one of the things that uh, you hear, you know, happening in Athens is that uh, like wealthy mem- wealthy people in the city uh, figured they were going to die soon. And so they just started like spending money on everything. And you had this like social upheaval where people uh, who had previously kind of been, you know, uh, marginally marginal, you know, in terms of their socioeconomic status suddenly made a lot of money, uh, you know, from either from people dying or because, you know, wealthy people were kind of dumping all their their loot, figuring, you know, their time was up anyway. Uh, you had, you know, sort of whole scale kind of religious upheaval as, you know, people were uh, kind of giving up on everything. It's just, it, it's interesting to read, um, you know, about the, the sort of breakdowns of society. And then you sort of look at what's happening now uh, and we're kind of, you know, bailing out Boeing and giving everybody else a 50 cent check to, to get through the next four months. And it's it's sort of the opposite in a sense. I mean, we're sort of retrenching uh, and I feel like almost missing an opportunity to, to do something positive or to get something out of this that, that uh, could help us rethink society. We're kind of retrenching in a sense. Yeah, one thing that stuck with me about this is um, it comes, right? It comes, uh, it's the hard abrupt end of like the Athenian golden age of the imperial age of it's this whole, the empire ruptures because there, it turns out if you do not have the people within it, um, and the city state's a small scale, but even so, if you do not have the people alive or invested in empire, then you can't do empire. Uh, my first introduction to the, the plague and the siege of Athens actually came uh, for this fantastic, um, it's the cartoon history of the universe. Um, and the Plague of Athens basically ends the first volume of it. So that goes from like the Big Bang to the Plague of Athens um, for its scale. And it's really fascinating to see because you get to hear like, well, here's the human project. They figured out farming. They figured out trade. They figured out how to move to places before diseases could kill them. And then suddenly, once you figure out how to travel far without dying immediately of, of a disease, then you can have um, epidemics and pandemics. It was when I was looking up this piece, I had my initial idea was I was going to try to find the earliest, like clear example of like plagues and war. And we have early examples of like the Black Death. They can dig it up in like ancient grave sites, but they didn't go far, right? You can't connect to those because people would just die in place. Um, and it took a particular kind of infrastructure, which uh, war and trade brought about for the ancient Greeks, to have a disease that could come in one place, infect people, travel among people, infecting more of them, and then sit in a city killing people over time. 
Um, it's like a quintessentially like a um, a phenomenon of organized civilization at some scale. Um, and it suddenly changes everything else you have to do about it. Um, where I end up going with the piece, and this is where, where the history tells, takes you, is that the siege of Athens did not end with a frontal assault, right? There's none of that like battering rams or those big cinematics you might see from movies or whatnot. It ends because Athens gives in. They cannot keep fighting the war through their navy alone. And the Spartan army, which is like in the fields and relatively spaced apart, um, because they know where the enemy is, they can just reassemble when they need to, is still intact. And so the siege does the plague and the siege does the work that fighting normally would have. And the Athenians um, broker a piece at the end, which renounces a bunch of claims and all that. And um, and it's because the plague did the work of the war. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's interesting. The, the immediate... Um, the immediate response from the Athenians, because it was, you know, there, it was Pericles who kind of devised the strategy of bringing everybody into the city behind the walls and kind of waiting the Spartans out. And he died because of the plague. I mean, he died of the, the disease. Uh, and so then, you know, they kind of, the, the new leadership uh, decided instead to go on this kind of aggressive naval campaign uh, which, as you say, they couldn't sustain. I mean, they didn't have any ground forces to sort of uh, sustain that, and eventually they just had to give up. I mean, there was just, uh, you know, there was nothing, there was no place left for them to go. And the reason, of course, that we know uh, so much about this war is because one of the uh, Athenian generals, Thucydides, uh, wound up, you know, kind of being exiled for his military failures and uh, then kind of went uh, on this project to write about the war. And that's, that's what, you know, that, that account uh, is what has survived to the present day. And it's, it's really kind of one of the, uh, the, the first examples of uh, historical writing. So it's, it's a, you know, it's a really fascinating uh, time. And it's one of the things that we see really interesting um is right is Thucydides is writing a history, but he is uh, I mean, and it's very clear. Right? He's a clear example of a historian who participated in events and has something to say about them. There's no um, the the notions of neutrality are not there. This is him telling the story, and so he quotes at length um, like a Pericles speech in the middle of it, which has this incredible line um, that I'm going to quote here: uh, "The plague has come upon us." The only point, indeed, at which our calculation has been at fault, end quote. And it's a long thing where he's talking about, like, well, here is what we plan to do. Here is why the war was good for our glory. And here is everything that went right, except for this one thing, which is killing all of us. <laughs> right. <laughs> Just, other than that, Mrs. Lincoln. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and it's just incredible, right? And, like, you can see that Thucydides writing this is clearly, like, he has some stake in how this is understood and he gets the, the final word over basically everybody. Um, but it's also the notion that you could do all of these things and still fail because disease and then think you were still right. Like the possibility you should be prepared for disease. It is a thing society should do. It is one of the hardest tasks of being humans in community with other humans is to figure out how you can keep each other alive through such a external force acting upon you. 
<laughs> yes, exactly. I mean, you're in the piece. You go on to talk about the uh, the sort of traditional or historical linkage between war and plague and and usually the way this goes and uh, i think maybe it's been inverted a little bit now and as i say we'll we'll kind of get into the modern situation uh, in a bit uh but the traditional connection is sort of you have the war which brings you know armies to different places and displaces populations who are uh, affected by the conflict and they go off someplace else it's the war that becomes the the cause of the disease like the disease uh follows on from that um and you talk about um you know one of the interesting cases even as you said all you know when we are talking about the plague of athens uh, you know, people didn't understand germ theory at this point. There was no concept of, of uh, you know, the, like the scientific concept of what caused these epidemics was not well understood. Uh, but they, they did have this sort of understanding that it had something to do with uh, being around the people who were dying or who were getting sick. Uh, and one of the examples you talk about is, is uh, the Mongolian siege of Kaffa. Uh, in the the I think 13th century or 14th century. 14th century, yeah. Um, so and and yeah, so go you know talk about that because that's that's an interesting one that has traditionally been connected with the Black Death, although modern uh, research has kind of thrown some some cast some shade on that. Yeah, so the siege of Kaffa is the um, you might see it, you'll especially see it um, in. Maybe older history textbooks are more like basic level ones. Um, it's certainly how I first heard of this. Uh, so Kaffa, it's a port on the Black Sea. Um, it's settled by uh, Genoese traders. Um, it's kind of its own little bit of history. It's, it's one of those things where like you, the world being far more connected than we tend to think of for that era. Um, but what, and so the... The Italians are there, they're doing their trading, and they have like some dispute with the Mongols. There's different different relative Mongol leaders and Italian leaders get along better or worse. Um, and one of them ends up in a siege um, and they to drive them out. Um, and so because it's a connected world, they're able to the Italians are able to send a relief army. Um, and the siege the Mongols do not break the siege, uh, or do that they do not um, break through. They are they end up leaving, but before they leave. They have a plague in their camps, a, a, a disease ravaging them, and they use their siege engines to hurl corpses into the walls of Kaffa. Um, this is, I should note, this is the story we hear from Italian sources. The guy who wrote it all down uh, lived outside Genoa. He um, is a contemporary of people who probably returned and when he wrote it down. Um, but that's the that's like the historical distancing um, or warping we get in the tale. Uh, but the so, but he describes right like that the Mongols are hurling their dead into uh, into the city, and then from there, um, traditionally the story goes right that those corpses had the Black Death. The Black Death gets into the uh, Italian forces. The Italians return to Europe. The Black Death goes into Europe. Um, and there's some dispute about whether or not that's actually the path it took. The Black Death could have traveled many different ways. Um, it didn't even need to travel with the corpses. If you have 
sieges, you have stockpiles of food, and then that attracts rats, and the rats we know are a big vector for bubonic plague. Um, even to this day, you can get uh, bubonic plague from rats in a particularly rural places of New Mexico is a fun trivia fact for you. Um, <laughs> Stay safe out there. It's yeah, well, it's fine. It's fine. We have we have a vaccine and a, um, we can treat that now. They could not treat it then. That's a treatable thing. But um, but it's there. Um, and so it's possible that the Black Death came this way. Um, it's possible. It's also likely, right, that it was the Black Death was just sign of already working its way through the world was already there, got in, uh, killed the people. Um and it's possible, right? This is like one of the earliest recorded incidents of um, hurling corpses with disease to an enemy. Uh, you will see it cited. I saw it cited as recently as a paper published in 2018 as like, this is the first known use of bio-warfare. And like, kind of. Um, yeah, it depends on how you define use, I guess. I mean, it's not the first time a, uh, somebody had used disease as a as a tool of war. I don't think. Right, it's like one of the early ones, right? I think it, I think it go it belongs in the canon. Um, it's maybe overstated its point, but it's the more important to like our discussion, right? Is that what the siege brings, right? Is the idea being that you are safe and secure in your walls as long as you have food and help on the way, and this is a port, right? So it could resupply from the sea. Uh, ports are a lot harder to besiege than say um, landlocked cities, but. You and we're we're also to be to be fair. We're at the end, really, of the period where the Mongols were the the baddest military force on the planet. So uh, they're they're not what they used to be by this point. Which you know, thirteen forty six, thirteen forty seven. They're uh, you know, there's still there's still a force to be reckoned with, but not quite what they what they were before. No, absolutely. And this is not, these are not the Mongols who had the siege engines um, that they used in their wars um, in East Asia. And, uh, none of that. So, this is, um, so the idea, right, that the Italians thought they were, they, they, they were pretty secure, they could withstand there, but disease passes those barriers. Um, there's only so much you can do in a siege um, to really mitigate that. And they certainly didn't have really good sense or understanding of what it is. There, what you need to protect people. You are already in density with finite supplies um, and going out or spreading out is uh, impeded by the walls that are keeping you from being murdered. Um, and so sieges historically and um, often end with surrender from lack of food, lack of water, or because of disease, right? That's the longest way a siege can go. The, I guess, lowest impact for a besieger who has access to resources and time is you just wait for the city to eat itself to death um, or to, to scavenge or to fall to disease. These are, and these are known parts of warfare. This is not like, oh, well, that was a convenient happenstance. This is kind of just a thing you expect. Once you've trapped someone, um, that's what happens. And it's a the idea, right, that you can turn a fort a protected fort into a cage and a death trap. Um, it turns out to be a pretty durable idea. So there's another case that, that uh, I have read about that um, where, again, kind of still before the sort of uh, understanding of biological contagions 
you know, was, was, you know, was before people knew what was going on with these things. Um, but it's another example of, of biological warfare or a plan at least to conduct biological warfare. There was a, a during, uh, the siege of Candia, uh, on the island of Crete, uh, in during the Cretan War, which was in the 17th century, it was 1645 to 1669, uh, the Ottomans besieged and eventually, you know, wound up capturing the city and the island uh, from Venice. Uh, but during the siege, which lasted a, a, a quite a bit, well, during during their kind of campaign on the island, uh, which lasted over 20 years, uh, the island was hit by plague, uh, and it seems to have. Um, you know, it hit the Ottomans as well as the Venetian defenders, but the main effect seems to have been to sort of clear out the countryside and allow the Ottomans to kind of fork it, focus their uh, their efforts on besieging the capital. So it actually helped their uh, their war effort. But we know now, uh, apparently, there was a, a, at one point uh, the Venetians um, decide or they they hatched this plan. Uh, to take the the dead bodies, the people who had been dying of plague, and swab the 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 pus, I guess, or the liquid that was coming out of the their plague sores, and even uh, you know cut them open and kind of uh, swab their spleens, and I mean just I mean it's kind of advanced considering you know uh, you know they they still didn't know what was causing the plague, but uh, they had some some knowledge of how you could um, kind of weaponize it, I guess. Uh, so they were gonna gonna take the liquid, you know, take the the stuff that was coming out of these bodies, uh, and weaponize it, kind of take it out and and try to infect uh, the Ottoman attackers. Uh, they never actually put it into to uh, put the plan into action. And you know, people, you know, the the researchers who uncovered this plan were kind of you know like. We're not sure this would have worked. Like the 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 plague bacteria could have easily died, you know, depending on how they uh, they went about. If they were going to like smear it on blankets and kind of give plague blankets to the Ottomans, I don't know how it would have would have been operationalized. Uh, but it still is an interesting case of kind of this historically, you know, the understanding uh, in general terms what was going on, you know, with these diseases and and. Uh, the connection between the illness and something that was happening to the people who got sick or something around them. Uh, so it's an interesting, you know, it, it, like CAFA, I guess, it's sort of uh, uh, an interesting case uh, case in that regard. Uh, so I, let's, let's kind of move into the current period. And when you're talking about uh, besieging an enemy in the year 2020, um, you know, that, that kind of thing in a military sense uh, only happens in, you know, relatively few cases. I mean, we saw sieges in, or we've seen sieges in Syria. Um, we've seen, you know, in some other places, you know, cities or strongholds coming under what could be described as, as a siege. But what you're talking about in this piece is something else. So go, t get into uh, yeah. sort of where you're coming from. So, yeah, so it's important, right? There's there's kind of a, a, we have a narrow conception of siege as a thing that is enforced um, by armed people in the field against a sort of like uh, 
surrounded, um, cut off or like walled city or even just city. There's lots of them. Um, there's, I was actually kind of surprised at how many there have been in this uh, century, but there are a lot of them, right? Like big battles in like the forever war, like the siege of Tora Bora comes up or things like that. But when you, um, and there's a lot, a lot of really grim ones um, in Syria um, and Geneva conventions has like rules about that, right? You still have to let humanitarian aid through, right? You can, uh, your there's rules about what like medical supplies and food need to be allowed to pass through in the laws of war um, to the extent that anyone follows them, but that's what the they say and establish. But the other kind of siege is sort of a broader notion, um, which is if you are cutting off countries from access to supplies, um, and the one that uh, kept ringing in my mind as this was going on, right, is looking um, at the situation between, um, I say between, the situation of the U.S. related to Iran, where the United States has um, enforced a massive sanctions regime for a long time and then um, expanded that to include the uh, the second order sanctions, where not only will the U.S. sanction companies um, will sanction its companies from doing business with Iran. It will sanction other companies uh, or the, like other countries from having worked with companies that do business with Iran. Like it's a weird web. Um, it's largely enforced by the treasury department. And then uh, there's um, a specific, I think it's a customs office of New York. I'd have to double check on this, but there's all, there's a few mechanisms by which it fix. It's all like legal. It's, and right. Treasury. It's the extraterritoriality of it. It's not just, uh, as you say, it's not just sanctioning U S companies or U S individuals that do business with Iran. It's telling everybody around the world, governments, businesses, individuals, no matter where you are, if you, do business with Iran in violation of these U.S. restrictions, you will not be able to do business in the United States, which is basically the, uh, that's the hammer. And nobody, uh, I mean, I mean, maybe in a, a few very fringe cases or very tightly kind of heavily siloed cases, uh, would you find any entity that's willing to say, okay, I don't, I don't care about doing business with the United States. I want to do business with Iran. Nobody, like hardly anybody, or or maybe nobody at all, uh, is going to actually make that that decision. And so uh, the effect then is to make U.S. sanctions universal. And you know where prior to the use of these kinds of things, you had to get the United Nations or some other international body to to impose. Uh, restrictions, but now all it takes is the United States to say, uh, you know, you can't, this country's cut off, and they are effectively cut off, whether the rest of the world likes it or not. And the big thing, too, um, uh, and even within the, the broader debate over the, the morality of, of sanctions writ, writ large, the whole notion, right, that you're going to force a country to capitulate by depriving its least um, efficacious people from having the material they need to survive or engage in the world. Um, even setting that aside, if you're talking just about humanitarian goods, the way that second order sanctions are so vigorously enforced is that if a company is like, well, look, it's a pandemic. We want to sell things to Iran. We want to sell like a face masks or whatever to Iran. There's a good chance that they will inadvertently or maybe at deliberately get flagged 
for selling goods that are legally and nominally exempt from sanctions regimes to the country, and then they will be cut off from dollars. Right. Right. Well, this is this is where the the nature of the the sanctions comes in because you can exempt in the United States. The Trump administration is constantly saying, you know, we don't sanction trade and humanitarian goods. There's no reason why uh, any of that should be affected. But what the Trump administration does sanction and has sanctioned are Iranian banks, and they've even sanctioned the Central Bank of Iran, which is one of those big sort of. Uh, traditionally has been a big no-no about sanctions policy because it has so many knock-on effects. But the big knock-on effect here, where we're talking about humanitarian goods, uh, is you may be saying it's okay for Iran to purchase uh, medicine or to purchase medical equipment, but you're also at the same time saying it's not okay for any of the financial institutions in Iran to purchase anything. So uh, there, the uh, goods may be allowed, but the mechanism by which they would you know, purchase and import them are, are outlawed. Yeah, and so it's, um, I mean, it's hard to look at it as um, anything, like the best possible light is a terrifically negligent. Um, and in most, lights um and we'll get into this in a second right it's deliberately cruel um it is a way to say it's a way so you can still get people publishing op-eds in bloomberg or whatever saying we don't need to reduce this now there's still skirmishing happening between iranian-backed militias and iraq clearly this is not the time besides humanitarian goods are okay and they're only okay if you ignore how any of the world works um, there's no mechanism by which this happens. There's no easy way to get things to it. We saw, um, I want to say the, I, I, you probably know this better than me. I think we saw like Imran Khan of Pakistan calling for the U S to lift sanctions on Iran during the pandemic. And that's not a particularly like frost, like a particularly like close relationship between those countries to begin with. But like, it's, well, even I mean, even the UK government has suggested it's not. I mean, Imran Khan is sort of uh, enthralled to the Saudis, so he's not uh, in a position to be a, a great friend to the Iranians. But even the UK, which mm-hmm. is you know, of all the European countries who've been sort of uh, reluctant in one way or another to acquiesce to U.S. pressure on Iran, the UK has been the the most you know Boris Johnson for obvious reasons has been the most interested in kind of. Uh, kowtowing or, or kind of towing the line that, that Trump has set, even the UK has suggested that, that the United States should um, reduce sanctions. And I guess we should, we should for context, I mean, you know, Iran now has uh, over 29,000 known cases uh, of COVID-19, uh, probably more than that because they don't have testing kits. And of course, there's uh, the usual kind of skepticism about anything the Iranian government says uh, so there's a lot of you know feeling that they may have uh, far more cases than that. Uh, they've uh, acknowledged, I think, 2,200 deaths uh, related to the coronavirus. Again, there's um, some skepticism about a: have they been able to track that accurately? And b: are they actually telling the truth? Uh, so it may be higher than that. Um, and and you do have, I mean, it is demonstrably the case that. Uh, U.S. sanctions have impeded uh, the ability of the Iranian medical system to respond to this. 
Um, you know, they're still imposing new kind of restrictions to kind of contain the virus. I think today the, the latest was uh, they're banning travel between cities to try and keep people in place. Uh, and at the same time, the Trump administration is still imposing new sanctions. Just today, they imposed new sanctions on like 20 different Iranian entities. Uh, I thought it was interesting that uh, yesterday, the New York Times editorial board did a, uh, you know, published a piece uh, called This Coronavirus Crisis is the Time to Ease Sanctions on Iran. Uh, that's the New York Times, which is no kind of dovish outlet. Uh, and then right on cue, basically, uh, the Wall Street Journal editorial board publishes an, an op-ed, No Time to End Iran Sanctions. Uh, so it's sort of, you can see the, uh, even I mean, even the New York Times, now there's still this kind of rump of anti-Iran sentiment, but even the New York Times is saying, uh, we need to lighten up here. And... And it's really like, um, and there's others, right? We could we could talk. Um, I'm I'm less familiar with the details, right? But we could talk about the way that like these kind of sanctions controls um, impact like uh, Venezuela or the way that uh, blockades impact like Gaza. There are sieges across the world that are sort of enforced by um, by denying access to the dollar market and therefore just siphoning, cutting off from a huge swath of the economy the countries deemed insufficient, whatever, um, maintained and exacerbated in in the pandemic. Um, and what really struck me, what really like brought this, um, like this is this is how I end up as winding um, winding down the the ink stick piece, is that this weekend um, the New York Times reported that uh, Secretary of State Pompeo and Director of National Intelligence Richard Grinnell, um, they're making a case um, that we should treat the plague in Iran, that we should treat COVID-19 as a softening blow by which to either launch military action or urge some kind of like internal regime change, um, which the latter part is sort of been U.S. policy since raised It's a long time, right? There's been a lot of animosity um, at Iran from the U.S. For, for decades, but like to treat the plague as a effect to exploit, to use the uh, to the Pentagonese here, um, is just staggering, right? Like it's it's not without precedent in human history, but all of the precedent in human history is extremely grim and bloody. Yeah, I mean, it's it's sort of even, I mean, you know, under past administrations at times of serious kind of natural disaster type situations, the United States has offered uh, assistance to Iran. They haven't, you know, gone in the other direction. And of course, uh, you know, supposedly the Trump administration has offered assistance to Iran here. But at the same time, with the other hand, they're, they're still tightening sanctions and the Iranians have basically said, uh, you know, uh, we don't want your help unless it's going to be in the form of, uh, of easing sanctions. And we're not, you know, the, the U.S. is not willing to do that. Um, I mean, it seems increasingly clear to me, and you, you may uh, have a different take on this, but it seems increasingly clear that, uh, and I think that, you know, they've even kind of alluded to this in, in sort of disturbingly open ways, uh, that the sanctions on Iran 
which which you know the the rhetoric used to always be we're targeting the elites we're not targeting the iranian people we're we're not trying to hurt the iranian people uh you know we're we're just trying to hurt the government and i think the same thing can can be said of venezuela although you know as uh, you know as with you i i know less about the venezuelan case uh but we've we've sort of shifted from this rhetorical cover where we say oh but the you know we're not we're not these sanctions aren't meant to to harm the people now you know sort of increasingly i think acknowledging that w what we're really trying to do here is hurt the people so badly uh, that they rise up and overthrow the government on our behalf basically they they do something you know for uh, that washington wants uh, but the point is not to um sort of spare the people of these countries from harm under these sanctions the the point is actually to administer more pain than they can tolerate and cause something to to break in those societies uh i don't know if that's your view of things but but it strikes me that uh that's where we're at now i mean it, i mean absolutely um and this is uh Pandemic aside, right, this has sort of been the forecasted um, structure and direction of the U.S.-Iran relationship since um, since Trump's election, really, right, that the JCPOA, right, this very elaborately constructed multilateral framework, uh, we will set some terms, you will show some demonstration that your nuclear program is uh, no longer underway. We'll release a bunch of sanctions. We'll welcome you back in the international community. This very elaborate, lots of like sophisticated moving parts, um, and that like destroying it has been the central objective of not just Trump, who is like animated as much by a desire to undo everything as predecessor did, but also by a not insignificant part of the national security establishment, which was like convinced that the deal was so bad. Um, that therefore we needed to apply pressure to do a different one. And what is happening, right? The plague is exacerbating it. The, the COVID-19 is um, straining every part of the international system um, in severe ways, but that it's happening in a context where the people were, who are making these decisions were already convinced that uh, toggling suffering upwards was the way to get the outcome they want it's not going to change their mind that, um, oh, well, now there's something else doing the suffering and we can uh, increase the cruelty simply um, by the same mechanisms. We can still deny the care because um, plagues are like, sure, the vaccine is is always a way, but like the kind of care and support and infrastructure, right? This is how uh, flatten the curve went from like a little known phrase like a year ago to basically everyone's vocabulary now there are things that can be done we have an understanding of disease and vectors and suffering um and to fly in the face of all of that to allow this to continue feels like a deliberate policy choice um in favor of cruelty to unclear ends yeah i, I that's that's a good point i mean because it's not there's no proof of concept here, right? There's no proof that there is, in fact, uh, a level to which you can turn the screws on a on a country uh, to get the people to rise up and and do what you want them to do. That's that's not 
been demonstrated to any anybody's satisfaction i don't think uh but they're still sort of committed to that and then and the other thing you you hear from uh the 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 iran hawk community like the really kind of anti-iran types the folks at the foundation for defense of democracies and and you know places like that uh the other thing you hear from them is uh we don't need to to give sanctions relief because the iranian government uh has done things in the past and kind of taken money and used it for uh military buildup instead of uh for helping the people and it's sort of uh, you know, I mean, there, there's the, a kernel of truth there in the sense that, uh, yes, the Iranian government has uh, built up its military. Now, you can, you know, argue about whether it's done that in an aggressive way or because the United States uh, basically surrounds it now with military bases and, and the Iranians feel like they're on the defensive. Uh, but regardless, yes, they have, you know, directed resources in in ways that I guess the U.S. government would not approve. Uh, but that doesn't, I mean, that shouldn't change the fact that people are suffering right now. And there's a tool that, that the United States could use to help alleviate that suffering. Uh, the other thing you hear from these, these folks is, uh, don't, don't relieve sanctions and, and give resources to the government, uh, help the Iranian people directly. And I have no idea what that means. I have no idea how that could be actualized. I'm pretty sure it's just empty rhetoric. Uh, but that's that's another thing that they they keep talking about, and I don't know if you've encountered some some other kind of uh, excuse making or rhetorical deflections from from that crowd, but it's it's sort of maddening to 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 listen to in a sense. I mean, it's this weird phenomenon, right? You can talk, and we and we often do, right? And you see, you will see a lot of people. Um, especially um, like a lot of like East Asia watchers say talking about how we need to distinguish between um, how we understand what people in China did and what the like authoritarian government of China did. And there's um, a whole lot of truth to that. But you also like the only way for nations really to interface with each other. There isn't a way, right, for someone to drive up to Iran with trucks full of masks or ventilators and say, look, we understand this is how we get path through, this is how we do humanitarian sanction, uh, through humanitarian sanctions, people to people, right? We're doing that. There isn't a way to do that. Governments are how people interact, whatever they are, right? You are stuck with the government you have in the pandemic for at least some of the pandemic. Um, and there's no way to interface with that, right? It's not, um, like it is uh, to to the Athenians' benefit, honestly, right? That Pericles died during the plague um, because he was uh, persuasive and able to convince the people to keep fighting the war until he was no longer alive to do so. Um, but that was like where you could pinpoint, here's an individual who will do it. But it wasn't like the people rose up and did it, right? It was that the intractable leadership just died and maybe that's the argument here maybe the notion is that um u.s foreign policy is to assume the plague will kill hardliners and therefore iran will be amenable to diplomacy but it's hard to say it hasn't been stated and it's kind of batch to assume <laughs> that, that would be where it goes <laughs> so i have uh, to to sort of bring us you know, fully into the, you know, we're now in the present situation. Let's talk a little bit about, um, you know, speculate a little bit about the future. 
Um, one of the things, and I, this was true before the pandemic, uh, it will be true still after the pandemic. Um, you know, one of the issues, the, the great issues internationally with this concept of U.S. sanctions as applying to everybody, not just to, to people and businesses in the United States, is that there? You you would think anyway. I mean, I don't. Obviously, this is another thing that that hasn't been demonstrated. But you would think there would come a point where the rest of the world would become so fatigued by this uh, that countries would start to say, you know what, we don't. We're not going to listen to this anymore. We're not going to follow these sanctions. We're not going to do business in dollars anymore. Whatever it takes to sort of insulate ourselves from these penalties, we're we're not going to let the United States continue to lord over us in this way. And I, I don't think that something like this, I mean, pessimistically, I, I feel like the humanitarian needs of the people of Iran or the people of Venezuela or, you know, take any other country, uh, North Korea, although the, the sanctions there are more international, I don't feel like the humanitarian needs of any of these people are going to actually motivate any European governments or corporations or, or anybody like that to act to, to sort of take the decisive step to get out from under uh, the U.S. yoke here. Uh, it's going to take something, you know, more self-centered, more kind of in their interests, the, the loss of business opportunities or, or that sort of thing. But do you think there is a point that we're going to reach where this kind of excessive application of sanctions and the you know broad, forceful enforcement of them over uh, the whole world is going to eventually lead uh, the rest of the world to say enough. We, we're not we're not going to continue to to let you do this. I it's extremely possible. I think the um, the combination will come um, in part. I think from. Uh, the U.S. just being overbroad in in what it does in making, because uh, it makes like financial transactions difficult for everybody, right? Like, and this is, um, and like within the U.S., right? Like, it's under to the degree of sovereignty, all that it's understandable, right? If you Venmo someone something and you include like an Iran flag emoji in your Venmo thing, that gets flagged until you explain it to Venmo. Um, that's kind of how this works. Um, there's, there's other ways that's, I think the most immediate and like millennial level of <laughs> understanding that, but, um, and there's nothing really you can do with that, right? The U S would have to change its own rules internally, but like for the entire world, right? Like to have to have an international company that deals with Iran and then have two separate, like a fully siloed division that deals never in dollars that touches Iran and one that deals with dollars and touches the rest of the world um, is a burden we are putting upon, the U.S. is putting upon um, its allies and basically any country that ever wants to use dollars. And that works as long as the dollar works. Um, we are uh, barreling straight into a depression to make the Great Depression look mild. Um, we are doing it in the middle of a pandemic that is not being managed particularly well anywhere outside of like Japan and Korea. Um, the power of the U.S. to use the dollar as leverage seems like a narrowing window. And maybe that would be the thing that ultimately lifts the siege, right? If the European Union decides 
that they're going to hold a euro as reserve currency instead, or if um, we decide the U.S. maybe throws sanctions up on China and that's the final straw and that breaks it, then we'll have the humanitarian follow-on when U.S. sanctions just break because they're unenforceable because the dollar is broken. But it's very hard to imagine um, the plight of people struggling in a pandemic will be enough to do it. Kind of, okay, so uh, taking a step back from that and and assuming that U.S. sanctions and the U.S. dollar still retain some power to move the rest of the world, sort of uh, before we get to the scenario where maybe, you know, this this whole system kind of collapses because the U.S. can't enforce it anymore. Uh, as you think about the application of sanctions as a tool of foreign policy or even, you know, sort of a, a kind of um, indirect tool of military policy in a sense. I mean, there there's some crossover, certainly, I think. Um, is there a role? And you're, I mean, you're somebody who's written about and thought about uh, what, a, what a left rethink of U.S. foreign policy would look like. Is there a role that sanctions can play in that? And, uh, you know, I mean, sort of very targeted, like, you know, if we, we decide to go after corruption, uh, you know, around the world and we sort of find people who are engaging in very corrupt activities wherever they are, you know, oligarchs and uh, the like, and, and targeting those people specifically with punishments or something like that. I mean, sort of a very kind of much less expansive use of sanctions, but still using them on, on you know, to, to achieve some policy aims. Is there a role for that or is the tool itself? I mean, I, I, I think almost to some extent we've proven now, the United States has proven that like we can't be trusted with this tool. Like we can't be trusted to use it in moderation. If you leave that, uh, Pandora's box sort of sitting out on the table. We're going to open it and we're going to go uh, all the way with these things and, and get, you know, back to punishing entire countries worth of people to uh, to achieve our aims. How, where where do you sort of stand on, on the question of sanctions in general? So I think um, this was uh, this was probably the, the most controversial series of posts we hosted at, at Fellow Travelers blog that left Foreign Policy Project. Um, I think it's really hard um, in this moment and with the U.S. role as it is to make an affirmative case for sanctions. I think um, I don't have good answers for what could be done instead, but I think if the left governments that um, may be elected or come into power in the future um, need to think long and hard about how their obligation in international community with autocrats and what tools they can use to break the power of autocrats, especially like the notion, right? The notion that you punish the leadership of a country on behalf of the people of that country who have no say and are suffering. Um, it's easy to understand how it got a hold in the U.S. foreign policy community and especially among like a liberal internationalist, right? This is, well, we're not killing them. This isn't war. We're not overthrowing governments. We're just trying to apply uh, 
pressure. But I think what we've seen in the left, and especially we've seen in the activist left, is a broader understanding of structural violence, right? Um, your Samantha Powers may distinguish between um, an invasion and sanctions as different as uh, one of those is violence and the other isn't. But your um, like your your uh, Ilhan Omar's or Rashida Tlaib's may not, right? Um, I that's speculation on my part of their views, but I think that's kind of where the backgrounds come from, right? If you come from an activist background, you may see sanctions more clearly as a kind of structural violence. That's why I went to the lengths to do like the siege metaphor here. Um, and I don't know how doable it is to say, well, we can only sanction individuals. I think it's a lot more doable to say, right? Like we will sanction oligarchs or these specific leaders. But the thing about people in those positions of power is they often have mechanisms by way to evade or get around them, right? The whole uh, structure of international financial markets and transnational capitalism is that it's very easy for money to get around rules um, for the most part, right? It's why, like, it's why if, if you could just, if, right, if the, U.S. could just sanction the leadership of government of Iran and cut them out, but then without sanctioning the Iran Iranian government, um, without the, the Bank of Iran, they might have done so or tried to do so. Who knows what results could have worked? You had to go through like the Bank of Iran, right? You have to go through like national banks to do this because it's very hard to do it otherwise. Um, and I don't know if that's a tool left governments particularly want to have. I think. Um, at a minimum, they will, should they come into office, they will do so far more clear-eyed about where the harms fall. They will think of sanctions uh, more as a kind of siege than they will as a kind of nonviolent foreign policy. Yeah, I, 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 I mean, I think I agree. It's just, it's almost too tempting, right, to, to leave it even as an option. Um and I mean, I should say the, the the administration has done some, has taken a few steps, you know, since the the pandemic hit to to um, open specific, very targeted channels to the central bank of Iran and try to, uh, you know, or at least to to make it appear cosmetically like it's doing something to uh, to make humanitarian trade easier, but. Um, you know, a that's that's sort of repairing a thing that we broke we, that didn't need to be broken in the first place. And B, uh, it's it's been inadequate. I mean, it's clearly been inadequate to the uh, to the challenge, the the restrictions that remain, and just the uh, the sort of indirect restrictions that remain from from banks and and companies uh, saying, well. Uh, we don't know if what we're what we're about to do, you know, what, what the, whatever business we're about to engage in with Iran is going to trip the sanctions wire. So uh, let's not do it because we just don't know, and it's not worth the uncertainty. It's it's that's still very heavily uh, impacting the situation. And again, it's something that that probably didn't need to to be done that way. Um, where we can talk about like. Um... Like my hunch is that a lot of this enforcement, especially when you like the Venmo example, right? Or um, and there's other ones is that it's a lot of it reads to me as sort of algorithmic enforcement of law, where what you have is you have banks have um, flags set up where they will automatically see certain parts of the transaction. Um, the ALAP podcast did a great thing on this where they talked about some of the ways automatic things get automatically 
flagged um, for for like a potential violation or whatnot. And depending on like, because so much of the financial system is automated, you can code in theory. Here is what gets flagged as money going from, uh, from dollars to reals. And then if you do that, um, you can then automatically like stop those transactions or what have you. And while that automatic enforcement is in place, it's really hard for a company to say, oh, well, we're going to trust that we carefully did the paperwork right to not have all of our bank accounts enforced. Um, you would have to absolutely change the enforcement mechanism first before you would get companies safely to even try to navigate around second order sanctions. Um, and it's a tremendous amount of power that countries should be very skeptical of leaving in U.S. hands. I, yes, I agree. And that's a good, that's a very, really good point about, you know, a lot of this stuff is, is automated even. And just the idea of putting a human being in that situation to sort of override the automation is a, a burden that most of these places aren't willing to, to take on. And I think, you know, understandably, because it, it is a burden. Um, and it's, it's an unnecessary one compared with whatever benefit they might hope to get from doing business with Iran, which uh, to be fair, even under ideal circumstances, is not is not huge. Um, so yeah, I I, I think it's uh, the conclusion here has to be that it's just too tempting a a, a tool to use, and and the effects are too pervasive uh, for it to be uh, justifiable. I mean, with great powers comes great irresponsibility. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Kelsey, thank you for coming on and, and talking us through this stuff and also for, uh, you know, giving us an excuse to, to talk a little bit about history, which I think uh, hopefully is a little bit of a distraction for people, even though it's still pandemic history. At least it's <laughs> we're we're sort of talking about somebody else's problems and not our own. Uh, so thanks for doing that. And uh, you have. Uh, your newsletter. I know you. Uh, uh, I wanted to give you a, a minute here to uh, sort of tell people about that and and why they should should be subscribing. Sure. So for my uh, nominal day job at uh, C four ISRnet, it's part of the Sightline Media Group family of sites. But at C four ISRnet, we cover all the weird fiddly bits of military technology that don't really cleanly fall into any of the services. Um, if you've followed me online, you know I cover a lot about drones and robots and sensors and like uh, surveillance in space and those things. And Tomorrow Wars is a uh, biweekly newsletter I do where I go into I dive into depth about usually one topic. We've talked about like the durability of landmines. You've talked um, about the way that uh, the Pentagon doesn't really understand labor objections to building weapons in Silicon Valley. Um, and we also talk about like, what do the robots of future war mean? What is it going to be like when robots are taking point in cave clearing operations in the Torah Bora battles of 2030, which who knows if those will happen, but um, tomorrow wars at C4 ISRnet is where I talk about these things. I think it's a really interesting look at, you know, uh, terrible futures as opposed to terrible present. Um <laughs> And and what could be done, at least anticipating those, to see where we are now. Um, and I have a lot of fun doing it. And if you would subscribe, that would make me very happy. 
We will. Uh, I'll put a link to the the newsletter in the show description uh, so people can find it. And uh, obviously, I will link to your uh, piece at Instick, Inkstick. Sorry. Uh, and um, yeah, hopefully, people check on check both of those out. Uh, Kelsey Atherton again, uh, defense technology journalist. Thank you for being on the show, and uh, stay safe out there. Of course, you too. Absolute pleasure. <laughs> Once again, I want to thank Kelsey Atherton for coming on the program. Uh, How often do you get to talk about the Peloponnesian War and U.S. sanctions on Iran in the same podcast? So there you go. Uh, Once again, I I hope that all of you and your families are staying safe and staying healthy. Uh, You have my thoughts and and wishes, best wishes, uh, whether it be that you do stay healthy or if unfortunately you or someone you know has come down with the the COVID-19 virus. uh, My best wishes for a a safe and complete recovery. Uh, Until next time, as always, uh, thanks for listening and I'll talk to you soon. Take care. Bye-bye.